Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, this show's engineer, and your host is Mari. Let me tell you a little bit about Mari. She's a local attorney and privacy consultant, and she's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in our county. She's testified many times in Congress and the California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV on a lot of different shows. Dateline, 48 Hours, Investigative Report, CNN, NBC, ABC News, O'Reilly Factor, Geraldo, and a lot more. So to learn more about this show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Good evening, Mari. Good evening, Lloyd. We have a show for you tonight. You know, we've had Larry Poneman on. This will be our third time, and I could have him on every week because he is just (laughs) one of our very favorite experts on privacy issues and a wonderful person as well. He's a great guy. He is a great guy. Let me tell you a little bit. Before I introduce him, I'm going to tell you we're going to talk about three very hot issues today um, that he's done surveys on. One is on workplace privacy. Everybody's worried about that. Um, And we're going to talk about surveillance. Everybody's got that on their mind since we've all heard about NSA surveillance. And then outsourcing. When we think about we're trying to call our bank and we're talking to someplace across the country where they can't even understand us and what they might be doing. So that is a, a real issue. Let me tell you a little bit about Larry Poneman. Larry Poneman, Dr. Larry Poneman, is a pioneer in the development of privacy audits, privacy risk management, and ethical information management. He's the chairman and the founder of the Poneman Institute, and he has vast experience in the fields of corporate governance, privacy compliance, data protection, and business, business ethics. He consults with leading multinational organizations on global privacy management programs. Dr. Poneman was appointed to the Advisory Committee for the United States Federal Trade Commission, and he also was appointed to two different task forces for California on privacy and data security. In fact, he sits on the Office of Privacy Protection with me in uh, the California Office of Privacy Protection. He has chaired faculty positions at Babson College and SUNY Binghamton and published more than 60 articles and five learned books. He's a frequent media commentator on privacy and other business ethic issues. He's been on CNN, Fox News, CNBC, uh, CNBC, MSNBC. He's been quoted in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post. You name it, he's been quoted. And he, um, he does wonderful research studies, which we're going to be talking about. And I'm thrilled to have the... Uh, privilege of serving as a fellow for the Poneman Institute that does great work. So we're going to have him tell us a little bit about what he does. Larry, good evening. Wow. Who is that masked man that you were talking about? That masked man (laughs) is a wonderful mentor for so many of us. Oh, ditto. You you, you know, obviously, you know, it's it's wonderful to to get that kind of an introduction, and, and I feel the same time Ten uh, when when dealing with you, Mari, you're you're just a wonderful person and certainly a guru and leader in our field. Well, we're I'm very we're, happy to be here. Well, we're thrilled that uh, we're all together doing the good work that we're trying to do, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're on a mission. That's we're on a mission. That's right. And I want to thank you also for joining us all the way from New York because I know you have a speaking engagement. So that was so kind of you to take time out of your busy day to to speak to our our audience. That's a pleasure. Thank you. 
Let's tell our audiences, I don't think they know really what you all do there at the Poneman Institute. Could you give just kind of an overview of what you do? Sure. Well, we are a research organization, and we are focused on privacy, data protection, and information security policy. Our studies fall into two broad buckets. We study the public at large, consumers and employees, and we also look at corporate best practices or maybe more generally organizational best practices because we've done a fair amount of work in government. And we're trying to figure out what companies are doing right, what they're not, and maybe identifying some gaps and help them improve over time. So that's really what we do. And we've established the Poneman Institute in uh, 2002 in Tucson, Arizona. Um, and, uh, you know, we're very pleased that the company, while still very small, is growing and prosperous. So there are, you know, obviously real opportunities in the privacy community right now. Well, I love the fact that you're trying to give education and you're also trying to verify whether a company is walking their walk or talking their talk, which I think is terrific because I know every time I've been around you and I've been in some of the seminars you've done, you know, you've really tried to help companies to see what is the ethical thing to do. And in in this day and age of Enron and and fraud and everything like that, it's such a needed area, Larry, and and you are really one of the, uh, the top people doing this and uh, really thank you very much I remember when I was getting my PhD and decided to do it in the area of information ethics my committee scratched their head they said what is that (laughs) (laughs) how are you gonna make a living doing this well you know 30 years later I'm still there that's right because you had the foresight to see what's coming and boy is it coming Let me tell you. Okay, so let's talk about um, some of these studies that you've done because I, I think they're fascinating. And uh, one of the ones I want to start out with, which you I didn't tell you this story. I haven't had a chance to tell you, but I, it's with dealing with outsourcing, and then you can go over the survey. Sure. Um, uh, last year in February, the last day of February in 2005, I got a phone call at 11 o'clock at night from what uh, from countrywide but it was from a woman with a very heavy indian accent and she asked me why i hadn't paid my mortgage payment and i told her that i had paid my mortgage payment i always pay it on time and what is she talking about and of course i was a little leery getting a phone call at 11 o'clock at night i didn't initiate the call and the woman started to threaten me she said to me um i need to have your checking account number immediately And I said, what are you talking about? She said, if you don't give me your checking account number so that I can transfer money to pay your mortgage payment for February, then I am going to immediately report you to the credit bureaus. So um, I started to, my blood started to rise. I said, first of all, you're talking to somebody who knows about fraud. I would never give you my checking account number over the phone. I know that I've paid it. We At that time, we were doing pay by phone, which is just like online banking. And I said, I will call my bank and find out what happened, and then I can talk to you about it. Um, I will call the number I know. She said, well, you can't call your bank because they're not open, and you can't call the number you know for Countrywide because they're not open. (laughs) And I said, I know that, so I will call in the morning. And she said, all right, we're reporting you to the credit bureaus right now. Well, I got off the phone and I was livid. I was, I just couldn't believe it. And I, and I asked her where she was, and she finally admitted that she was in India. Okay, that's and, good. Okay, so um, the very next morning, of course, I called Countrywide, and I, you know, had paid my mortgage on time for you know a couple years already with uh, my mortgage payment, and um, I called up my own bank, Bank of America. And I got them actually in a three-way, and I found out that there had been some kind of a glitch. I didn't know if it was Countrywide or if it was Bank of America, but there was a glitch that month that the um, somehow it didn't get recorded that we made that payment or it didn't happen. And I said, I don't care what happened, just make it happen immediately. So they transferred money on the spot, and I was assured by Countrywide that they had not reported me to the credit bureaus. So I thought, okay, but I did complain the fact that how I was treated and threatened at 11 o'clock at night by wow. someone like this. So um, I said, I'd like somebody to get back to me about this because I don't think this is proper procedure. So long story short, I get I get my credit reports a couple months later, and it's reported to oh, all three. No. 
<laughs> it's 30 days late, okay? So I call up again. I call, call, I call up Countrywide, and I said, hey, you got to fix this. They said, oh, we're sorry. We'll fix it. Okay, and then I did. I got something in, in fax from them that they had reported it to the credit bureaus. Didn't happen again. In September, I see them again, and again it's on there. And again, they fax me something. And by this time, you know, I was not a happy camper, and um, so I had written to the credit bureaus, and you know, asked that this be corrected in, in accordance with this. Then again, just recently. I checked my, you know, I go to annualcreditreport.com and I checked my credit reports for free. And again, it's on there, Larry. Oh, boy. This so, is awful. It was awful. So, um, again, I, at this point, I called again. I, I was told, no, that, that wasn't correct. It shouldn't have been corrected. And they said, no, I didn't pay in February. I said, oh, my gosh, you guys, what are you talking about? So we have been going through this. I finally was able to get another letter from them. And again, I'm I'm waiting for the credit bureaus to fix this, and I talk. Yeah, and I talk with the privacy office, mm-hmm. and um, and they did not respond to me about this outsourcing, but they sent me a basket with coffee and cake and. <laughs> Well, that's pretty nice. Oh, I mean, yeah, you know. well, it's nice. I asked for my hours and my 10 hours uh, that I actually spent. But I'll tell you, as outsourcing, that what I've found, not only from my case, Larry, but from a lot of other people who have contacted us, mm-hmm. when you outsource, they read from a script, and all they know is the script. They cannot go beyond the script because they aren't familiar with our culture, they aren't familiar with our things, and this is really, this was so frustrating for me, and I've heard similar stories, and and I'm just wondering, like, what are we going to do with all this outsourcing? It's, uh, it's pretty amazing. It really is. This is a sleeping tiger, or sleeping something or another. It's at some time in the future, this could blow up, this could be the Exxon Valdez of privacy, I think people are just unaware of how much of their information, their sensitive personal information, is in the hands of organizations in different countries. And obviously in some places, some countries have very good policies and good security procedures, but sometimes it's just that cultural dimension. You know, it's the inability to talk to someone who could understand the language, and and not just the words, but, you know, the intonation and really what we're trying to communicate. I was um, I had a, a computer glitch, and I called up customer service. Similar story. Uh, the person on the other end of the phone, he identified himself as Ralph. Right. But his, <laughs> clearly that wasn't, I mean, not to, not to diminish any part of the world, but this wasn't part of that. Ralph is not a common name in, say, right. Bangalore. Right. So finally we had a nice little pleasant conversation, and he mentioned that was in the script. He had to be Ralph. Right, know, right, right. He got a randomly assigned name. <laughs> Each time he gets uh, gets a call, so you know he's a very was a very nice person. His name is Jagdish, by the way. We we hit it off, and he explained that he was reading the script and he wasn't able to make certain decisions. If in fact you complained enough and you were upset enough and you were a good enough customer in terms of their database, then they would move you up the pecking order and ultimately you would get to someone in in Austin, Texas. But for most people, for you know most of us. Uh, the lay community, uh, you know, we're forced to deal with these kinds of issues. And it usually works until you have the problem that you have. Yes. And yeah. then you're out of luck. And, and, you know, I saw the 60 Minutes show on where they went over there and, and showed an Indian how they um, uh, give them names and how they practice to get rid of their accent and everything. Sure. And uh, the, the the particular woman I had didn't get any training in nice, com- you know, uh, consumer relations like you had, but uh, <laughs> but let's talk about this. You you did a whole survey on America's perceptions about outsourcing personal information. Yeah. So let's talk about this. What kinds of personal information does the public view as most sensitive for privacy and data security reasons? Well, that's really a good question. We looked at different categories of information, and clearly information that... Um, is used to determine, for example, our health condition. Patient records would fall into that category, would be the most sensitive. Um, not too far from you know, that category of information would be, for example, what you experienced at Countrywide, banking information or credit or debit card information. Um, you know, these are the kinds of things that we worry about. 
we're not that concerned as a public as yet. We're not that concerned about basic personal information, information that you can get from public sources, or even certain kinds of sensitive, non-public personal information. For example, your birth date or certain key events like anniversaries. But we are concerned if it does include a Social Security number, driver's license number, and obviously a credit card number. And my bank account number. And your bank routing <laughs> and bank account number. Yeah, that's that's best of all, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> well, especially because recently, you know, or what was it, last year, where there was a big transfer of funds, I think it was Citibank, um, out of India, like $350,000 was transferred from an account to um, an account in somewhere in India that was, you know, because they had a checking account number. So yeah, check routing numbers. It, it, there, there are controls in place, but unfortunately they're antiquated because they were developed in the 60s when, you know, the, the technology was, you know, akin to a slow-moving train, so it was fairly easy to get on and off. Now it's, you know, moving at the speed of a bullet, and so things, bad things happen all the time. And yet, you know, most people are less concerned about their bank account number than their credit card number. They think there's a higher probability of a fraudulent activity if it's their credit card number. And actually, in reality, you're protected. There's a limit, for the most part, on credit card fraud. Certainly not true in debit card or checking accounts. Exactly. Some people are so worried about credit card, and I always tell them, hey, your credit card is the safest thing you can do because if your money is siphoned out of your checking account, you're already going to have to go and prove to them, you know, to the banks, yeah. um, exactly what happened, and you're going to have a lot more trouble getting the money back. And meanwhile, checks are going to be bouncing all over the place. Whereas with your credit card, you're going to see the statement first, you're going to be able to review it, and then if there's fraud, you can let them know, and you're covered by the Fair Credit Billing Act, which protects you. Exactly. And credit cards, for the most part, the companies are, are, are wise to fraud. They've been at it longer than most. And so they're actually pretty sympathetic when you call. I have a pretty good relationship with American Express because on occasion, you know, there's a charge. And, you know, nine times out of ten, they're right. But, you know, there's always that one time out of ten that you look at and you say, gee, I'm not really sure I paid for those charges or I actually ordered that, you know, that book or whatever they were trying to sell me. Right, right. No, they're 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 much easier than than the banks when you have a checking account. Yeah, or mortgage companies. Uh, yeah, your experience. <laughs> now, Larry. So another one of the questions that I know that you went over was what actions or steps um, should American companies take to reduce privacy and data security risks prior oh. to sharing that personal data? Yeah, I see. I I think it, it starts with an organization makes a decision. If they're going to share your data, you know, for example, they're going to outsource to, to Romania or to India or to Russia, they need to be very, very sure, you know, a high level of assurance that that organization has good safeguards in place. And they also need to make sure that that organization is not going to subsource, you know, outsource your data to a contractor. Right. That's probably one of the other parts of this equation that happens more often than companies like to admit. So, you know, we outsource to a great company in Bangalore. India is pretty good, by the way. But then that company, and to maximize profits, decides to outsource to, I don't know, the Czech Republic or right. or Pakistan. And, and as a result, uh, that information is not safe and potentially is in the hands of criminals. So the first step is if you're going to share, you have to make sure there's safety. And number two, and it's not necessarily two in that order, it's probably equally important, you need to make sure you understand the consumer. How are they going to feel about it? For the most part, this outsourcing decision has been a decision based on economics. Like, I could save $5 a transaction. I'm going to do it. Right. But a company could end up losing a whole lot of customers. You know, your story, I'm sure after your experience at Countrywide, you were thinking about, do I want to continue to have a relationship if this is the way they treat me. Now, even exactly. if they give you that nice food basket, you, know, you may have changed your attitude, but at the end of the day, that's what people, that's what companies should be worrying about, not whether or not it's a $5 transaction fee reduction. It's whether I'm going to keep Larry Poneman or Mari Frank as a customer. Yeah, Pennywise Pound Foolish. Exactly. If, you know, absolutely. So um, should the government be passing new regulations to protect the American public from, you know, these outsourcing relationships? Gosh, you know, here's my view. Most people don't have a high regard for go- new government regulations. And, you know, we try to figure out, is it a party affiliation? You know, people who are more liberal will tend to be 
you know, more likely to favor regulation and people who are more conservative don't. It, it doesn't actually work out that way, at least in the privacy area. It seems that people are concerned that government will just mess it up. Right. But they also understand that it's a problem, and they think that ultimately there is accountability, that an organization needs to be accountable to its stakeholders. Now, one way of driving that accountability, as I mentioned before, is a reputation issue. So if customers say, you know, I'm not going to deal with company X because they outsource, I'm going to deal with company Y, then the the market makes the determination who wins and who loses. And the second way to do it, perhaps, is, you know, unfortunately, a few more lawsuits. It's not a good thing, but having lawsuits and the potential for even a class action litigation may, in fact, have um, stronger and more uh, positive consequences in the long term than, you know, and just another regulation that's not enforced very well. You know, Larry, we've talked before about um, this issue of transparency of, of if if a company is going to outsource that you know it. You know, this idea of using, I just called Ralph, and, and Ralph is pretending to be in, in Texas, but he's, but he's really in Pakistan or something. Um, what, what do you think about transparency where, the, where at least customers really know, okay, so I'm talking outside of this country? Well, I think it is about transparency. I think Elon had a pretty good model. What they said is to their customers, if we outsource, we can save your transaction fee by X amount of dollars, and we're going to share some of that cost savings with you. But if you still want us to process at the full rate, that's your choice. And most people actually decided to outsource. And so there was really no hidden agenda. The company said we're outsourcing simply because it is good for our business, but we do not want to lose your confidence and trust. And so that's the reason for the transparency. And I think if other organizations could do the same thing, maybe it's impossible to give the customer, the consumer, that choice because the data would be really hard to partition. But at the end of the day, if people at least knew, you'd feel better. So when you call up and someone says, my name is Jagdish, it isn't Ralph, at right. the starting point, you start to feel better about it. Right, because they're, it's not deceptive. Exactly, exactly. I really like the idea, like you were talking about with Elon, with choice. I like to be able to make that choice. If, or I can have a company say, look, we're cheaper, but the reason we're cheaper is because we're outsourcing. Mm-hmm. And, and so when you're comparing prices and you go to another company and they say, we don't outsource, so it is a little bit more, that at least is a choice that I can choose to make as, as a privacy professional. I, I might be willing to pay that extra, you know, couple dollars. You know what I mean? Yeah. But yeah, at least think, an, I'd have that choice. Yeah, I think most people would think about it, and they would say, look, if I'm going to allow this company to outsource my data and it's going to save the company money, I want to see some real tangible benefit, whether it's a reduction in fee, whether it's a different status of treatment, whether it's a gift certificate, whatever it is, at least you feel like you're part of the game. When you're not given that option, when there's no disclosure, you have to find it out by getting a phone call at 11 o'clock in the evening. Yeah. That's not going to be good for the reputa- long-term reputation of the company. Right. Now, in your study, you, you asked the question about whether consumers were willing to pay more to prevent you know, this kind of outsourcing. What did you find? Did you find that... that... Well, here's what we found. We found that most people are really cheap. Now, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> you could look at it two ways. Most people think that, you know, if if there's an outsourcing issue, um, a problem, the accountable organization is the company that decided to outsource, so any cost should be absorbed by them. But people weren't willing to spend more. Like, in other words, they should be willing, they, they are willing to get a little rebate, but they're not willing to increase cost. So my guess is that it's, it goes back to the basic issue, who owns the privacy ish problem? Is it the company? Is it the consumer? Is it a combination of the two? And now a third party is at the outsourcing organization, the company that kind of gets all this business in different parts of the world. So for the most part, I don't think people had an appetite to spend more money in order to make sure that their data was not shipped to an overseas location. Yeah, you know, Larry, because I, I get these people calling me that it's kind of a different, you were, you were doing a random sample. Yeah. The people I get are the people who are mad <laughs> or the people <laughs> who have already been victimized in one way, so they're calling me because they're upset about something. So it's interesting because the people that 
I hear from are saying something like, I'm only going to use American Express for a credit card because when I call, I speak to a real human that is in this country. Whereas when I speak to X company or Y company, I don't. So I'm going to use my American Express card and I'm going to cancel my other card because this is what I went through. So I think it matters also if you've been burned. You know, we've done a couple of studies that are actually called bias studies because we actually find people who are victims, whether it's identity theft, identity fraud, or just a bad overall experience. Right. But you're in that category of victim, right? You know, based on your experience, the countrywide. But at the end of the day, we find that people that have had a series of negative experiences involving their personal information, they think differently about this. Right. They are willing to do more. In fact, they're willing to buy software or engage in practices that actually reduces their convenience in order to have more safety. And so unfortunately, it's a shame that we have to wait till we become a victim to change our behavior, but the majority of people who have not been burned are still pretty complacent about the whole thing. I know. Today I got a call from a woman who had bought um, my both of my books, and she called our office because she wanted to know if we had a list of all the companies that encrypt everything that they send out, whether it's on a laptop, um, whether it's encrypted um, in their files, you know, uh, wherever it is, because she was just the, the uh, victim of a security breach. And I told her, you know, I can't tell you if people are encrypting their backup tapes. I can't tell you if they're encrypting their their databases when they're sitting, you know, in in their offices. I can't tell you if they're encrypting when they're on their laptops. I can tell you that, you know, for example, the California security breach law encouraged it with the carrot by saying you don't have to notify people if you encrypt. But she was desperate, saying, "You know, I only want, I, you know, I only want to get a new credit card that I know the company is encrypting because of what I'm going through now with the security breach." Yeah. You know, and I could, I don't know what to tell her, Lear. I said, "I, I can't tell you that. We don't have any way of assuring you of that, right?" Right. And see, the problem you have is if someone doesn't understand technology, they may actually get a sense of almost false comfort because of encryption. But the people who really know about security understand that there are different levels of encryption. And even when you use a high level of encryption, there could be something at the source that creates a potential for a data spill, a data leak, or a big problem for the consumer. Right, if you've so, got a dirty employee who's or, who, yeah, yeah, who has the, the key. <laughs> yeah, and right. it happens all the time. So I, I think that the problem that you have, even if companies were transparent, and they said everything that we send over the transom, you know, everything we send over the Internet through FTP or FTP, we, we encrypt this thing, and it is secure. And at the end of the day, you just don't have to worry. Well, that's a lawsuit waiting to happen. Right, right. Someone will say, well, you didn't use the best encryption. You didn't use PGP, which, you know, whatever it right. happens to be. And, right. and at the end of the day, that's going to be a real problem. But your customer, your, your not customer, but this person that contacted you right. really has, a, you know, raises a good point, which is it would be nice to know what kind of security safeguards these organizations have in place. Well, you know, I told her that I was going to be having an interview <laughs> with you today, and I said, Great. you know, so I said that I, I, I will ask Larry if he can do some kind of survey from these companies to see who is requiring encryption on, you know, and what level of encryption on their laptops and on their backup tapes since, you know, all these security breaches have happened. But it was a very, you know, and that wouldn't be a survey for Americans, you know, consumers, but it would be a survey for businesses as to what are they doing. So it's it's food for thought for you, Larry, for another survey. No, I'm motivated to do it. We did a study (laughs) on encryption, but it focused on different aspects, not actually determining the percentage of organizations that were encrypting data in motion versus data at rest. And so I think it really is a very good research question. So I'll be back at you with a Okay, a and she result. will love it. She, and I am getting those kinds of questions, people saying to me, Mari, what is the safest credit card company for me to use? And and I have asked the Federal Trade Commission to, because they get all these complaints, I've asked them, you know who are the are the most complaints. You know, you know which companies you're getting the most complaints on, um, and they do. But they are trying to work it through negotiation and saying, "Look, we're getting a lot of complaints about your company," but they aren't so willing to really put it out there 
um, because of the backlash that, you know, they're trying to support companies. And, and I understand that. But uh, it's something that a lot of people are asking for. Which companies are going to be most protective of my of my information? Which companies are going to be careful with encryption? Yeah. Which companies are going to, you know, uh, be good about resolving fraud? So uh, those are the questions I get all the time. So I got a lot of ideas for you, Larry. I don't know well, if you want to do them. No, this is great. This is <laughs> wonderful. But it's it's never a perfect indicator because, for example, even a company um, as well regarded as American Express, I'm sure there are people who will complain and have valid complaints because the company's big. In my experience, for example, um, we were just talking about Countrywide, but they are actually very good. You know, relative to other companies in their space, they're probably one of the best and the most secure. So Except I that, that I just I just heard uh, a survey that was just done, and it'll come out. We're going to do it on our show in a few weeks. That uh, Countrywide is one of the companies that just ignores fraud alerts. Oh wow! Uh huh. Okay. And they Dude. just, in fact, that that uh, that study is just went to the Federal Trade Commission. So, you know, it is interesting, and uh, so I will be talking with the privacy officer about that study, and we're going to have it on the show too because I thought, you know. You have to be, um, you know, you should be looking at these fraud alerts if you're a company, and that, you have to. And, and they're not, and and there's no private right of action if they don't. So there isn't really that incentive. In other words, if a company sees a fraud alert and they ignore it and still issue fraud uh, fraud account to the you know impersonator, uh, the victim can't sue them, yep. can't sue them. So. You know, we don't really have teeth in that, and and we're finding that you'd be surprised at the companies that are not really paying that much attention to these fraud alerts. Yeah, it's a shame. There's a lot of information that floats in within an organization, and if somehow that information get, can be shared broadly, do you remember that organization um, that you helped us um, evaluate called the Merchant Risk Council? Oh yeah. And it was a group of companies, a couple hundred companies that were sharing their fraud experience. So if a bad guy was trying to steal information and they were doing it through, you know, organization X, they'd probably try to find another organization and do the same thing. So organizations are starting to use intelligence right to figure out who are the potential bad guys and this is helpful. You know, at the end of the day, it's going to probably reduce the number of fraudulent transactions on your credit cards or your on your bank statement. But we're just starting to see it now. For the most part, these kinds of issues have been owned by a company. It's almost like they were ashamed to talk about fraud and fraudulent activity rather than right. share it broadly. Right. Well, let me ask you one more question about sure. this outsourcing, because I thought this was really interesting. I remember <laughs> when we went over about at this in, the, uh, in that conference call about which countries are viewed as the most and least trustworthy. Can you share some of that? Cause that oh, was... sure. And now... These were some interesting results, and they're interesting because they were very surprising to me, too. You yeah. know, normally, you get a hunch. You, 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 you do a study, and you basically take measures, and you, you exercise uh, good statistics and scientific sampling. We do all that stuff. And we actually got a list of, of countries that the best and worst, I, I suppose the worst I could understand, but the best was a little interesting to me. Number one, by the way, is Canada. Most people felt that Canada was the best country for purposes of outsourcing. And in some of our debriefings, some of the folks in the U.S. said, you know, they probably do a better job in Canada than they do in uh, other parts of the country. I don't want to pick on a state, but New Jersey was mentioned. <laughs> <laughs> so for those people in your audience in New Jersey, it's not in, I'm sorry that we're insulting you right now. And then number, number two is Ireland. Yes. Number three, though, is India. I know. I know. Number four is Wales, and number five, Germany. And the reason why, when we actually debrief people, we learned a lot about their perception. In fact, India got not only the third highest rating, but they got the most ratings of any other country in our, in our analysis. And what we found is that a lot of people felt pretty strongly that India, from a technology perspective, was doing a pretty good job. They were actually ahead of the curve, so to speak, in comparison to other countries. So I think we actually got people who felt pretty good about India, coupled with the fact that um, many in India, their the, the, uh, English is a primary language, so that it made it easier from an outsourcing perspective than, say, in different parts of the kind of, uh, different parts of the world. So that's what we found. That's the kind of the top ten, top five, and the top five 
is interesting in that if you look at most of these, English is a is the dominant language with the exception of Germany. And I um, wondered why, and remember we talked about this, why was England not up there? Was, well, I don't know. England was eight on our list. Yeah. And, and, and it probably was, uh, you know, maybe we had a bias sample. Maybe people <laughs> were thinking about the Revolutionary War. I was War. just going to say. You know, they're still angry at that, you know. <laughs> You know those, or yeah. the War of 1812. Um, right, right, right. Okay, so, so now the the, the bottom. This is always more interesting to focus on the negatives, I suppose. So right. the, the least trusted is the Philippines, and when we talked to people, they felt that it was a uh, it was not that organizations in the Philippines weren't trying, um, but it, it was just the perception that there was a lot of governmental fraud and made it very difficult for U.S. companies to do business in the Philippines. Huh. You know, based on ethics policies. Right. Mexico right. was was number two, and for the same reason, fraud. Um, I think there's a little backlash because of kind of the, the alien issue that occurs, and probably people felt negatively about the country at the time of the, of, of, of the study. Right. So, you know, you have to factor that into the equation. Haiti was number th- the third worst or lowest. Yep. Um, Saudi Arabia and Jamaica were tied. So what we found is that, again, the organizations on the bottom of the list, the general perception was that it is very hard for a U.S.-based multinational to do business in these countries because it's very likely a, the, the high, you know, high probability of fraud. And again, this is perception only. So I don't want anyone in the Philippine right. embassy to call me and say, <laughs> "Well, what did you? How do you know that?" Because right. we don't know that. We just know that this is how people feel. That's their perception, and it may be based on their experience as well. And and you know, perceptions can change. You know, when we they just can. had all these terrorists that were picked up in Canada, that might scare people that they might not trust Canada as much. Do you know what I mean? Absolutely. And or I'm the sure fact, that a bad yeah. incident, you know, and. In India or Ireland, you know, a da- big data spill problem, right. I'm sure it's going to change. Right, right. So that was just at that time. But it is it is very interesting stuff. It is. Let's switch now to surveillance. I, I thought that was a gr- <laughs> I love that great The evil eye of right. government and business. Right. Well, you know, I think with all this NSA surveillance, you know, in the news in, yeah. in recent months, that we're... we're questioning surveillance, you know, and people are thinking even surveillance like GPS, but how worried are Americans about surveillance in their daily lives? Well, again, this is the indication of complacency. We find that uh, the majority of Americans, this is a U.S.-based study, Americans feel that um, in some cases surveillance is acceptable and, in fact, I'll be a little stronger here and say it's appropriate. Right. Uh, But in other cases, it is completely unacceptable, and it just shouldn't be done. You know, so, for example, spyware on a personal computer, the use of technology to spy on you, especially if it's a download from a software company that you know nothing about, that kind of surveillance, that's almost like stalking. That's bad stuff. And right. most people would say, unless they're smoking something that's you know, not a cigarette, <laughs> <laughs> they would say, I don't want that on my computer. Now, wiretap is one of those issues, because it's been in the news, that people are, have very strong opinions that, you know, an illegal wiretap by government is really unacceptable. There's no reason for it, and it violates our civil liberties and, and maybe the U.S. Constitution. So that's what we hear. Now, things like uh, recording a customer service phone conversation, people say it's a form of surveillance. You're actually conducting surveillance to make sure that the employee is doing what he what she or, or he needs to do. Right. But at the end of the day, a lot of people feel, well, that's a good thing. You know, it's a quality control measure. Right. I suppose it's a good thing unless you're Ralph in India. <laughs> Someone was listening on the conversation and he revealed his name to me. He's probably fired as a result, so I'm sorry, Ralph. But, but um, Larry, most of the time when, when you get a phone call and they say, you know, you're waiting online and they say, this phone call may be, you know, recorded for quality assurance. I mean, it, it's, again, that whole idea of transparency. It is. You know about it. And so if you don't want to talk to them on that, then you can hang up. Yeah. And you have I, that I choice. Yeah. I, I mean, at least great. you know it. But, but if somebody is spying on you and you don't know it. That's, you know, it's like being in a bathroom at, at work and, and there's cameras in there that you don't know about, you know? Yeah, and, and we even asked that question, is it okay? And most people said, no, it's not okay to have a bathroom camera. 
Right. Um, it's just unacceptable. But but we find that people are willing to accept a certain amount of surveillance in order to increase their safety. Right. Or even to provide some form of convenience. So, for example, if there's a way to have what's called an active agent surveillance, where it's a camera in the ceiling and you don't have to go through another security step at the airport, people are willing to kind of give up something in order to say, look, I want to get to my plane without any kind of delay. So people are willing to do it for, for small personal benefits. But, but for the most part, I think people feel pretty negatively these days about government doing surveillance. And anything that tracks location, you know, like you mentioned GPS, right. for example, one of the issues we, we actually ask people, is it okay to have a chip, like an implanted chip? And we found that most Americans said never. Right. You know, maybe maybe you would do it if you you know if you were um, maybe on a, 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 a an elderly parent that uh, has Alzheimer's or right. a, a, maybe a, a pet, right. which I still think is unjust uh, <laughs> because I love my dog. But for the most part, I think most people feel very strongly about that being an unacceptable form of surveillance. Well, I, you know, I, a dog is different from a baby. Like, you know, our our little golden retriever, Rado, has has a chip since he was a baby. Yeah. But, you know, I wouldn't do it to my kids because they grow up and they've got that chip. And, yeah, that's and, right. and that's a little bit different. You know, you've got a dog, all right, so the dog can't talk. Or, you know, they, the dog can't be monitored for perhaps being un-American, you know? Yeah. But, yeah, and or steal his identity. Who's going to steal Rado's identity? Right, but um, I think it's it's entirely different. The idea of of security versus, um, you know, privacy in terms of surveillance. I know Lloyd and I have talked about that, and we have different feelings. But like he and you can talk, Lloyd, if you want. But you know, we had an argument about the NSA surveillance, and mm-hmm. and he said he thought it. You know, it's fine. Um, yep. Because I'm glad they're doing something. <laughs> See, <laughs> hey, I mean, it's an indication that something's happening anyway. Yeah, I mean, we we've had these little heated discussions about, hey, it's okay. I, I don't want these terrorists here. Let's get these terrorists. And and my view is, okay, if you've got enough information, get a warrant. And yes, then if you have a warrant and you have enough reasonable suspicion, then then go ahead and do it. So it's right. that it's that kind of a thing that, in a way. I also support it, but under conditions that you have probable cause. So, you know, I mean, it is, it's a tough thing when we're talking about security versus privacy for surveillance. Yeah, um, it, it's a, it is a tough thing. I have one question to ask you, though. Does, does your dog uh, have a social security number? No, he does not. <laughs> okay, then uh, you're he safe. See, that's what I told Well, does yours? <laughs> no, but, but it is an issue. The, the issue of, you know, when do we want to use these technologies? I mean, right. is there ever a time and place for a technology that may be viewed pretty negatively because when, you know, things are good, but when things are bad, we don't want another 9-11. Right. We certainly don't want any kind of nuclear threat. So if this technology can prevent that kind of a disaster, most people, you know, again, I don't, it's not a liberal conservative thing. I think most rational people would say, you know, we at least should consider it. But at the end of the day, if it affects you, if someone, if you feel that someone's actually listening in on your call, Right. Or someone is, you know, reading your mail, or a GPS chip is actually knows where you are, and as a result, that's being fed to some third party that you never know about, and you know, until a problem occurs. I think most people feel pretty strongly that that's not a good thing. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wanted to ask you, how about age and and gender and income? Did that have any influence on on this study at all? Yeah, we did. We actually find, and again, I don't want to pick on any group in, 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 uh, you know, in society, but it appears that um, younger aged uh, adults uh, between 18 and 25 are the most complacent about, not 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 the most uh, concerned about, but the most complacent about surveillance. Yes, um, and that's we my were, kids' ages. Yeah, <laughs> my kids do. You know, it's 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 you know, it's it's amazing because we have these uh, social networking sites like MySpace, right. Facebook, and people are willing to share just about anything. So the attitude is, look, it's not going to harm me. And I think later in life, you realize you mentioned a credit report. You know, once you get a a black mark or a red line or whatever the terminology is on a credit report, it's almost impossible to fix. So you start to leave a footprint, and that starts to become pretty scary. But most young adults are, seem to be the most likely, not to draw the inference that everyone falls into this category, but you know, the most 
the least likely to, to worry about surveillance. Yeah, you know, and I think that's a huge issue for us. This Is that the X generation, what you call them? But, you know, I know my kids' generation and everybody getting on MySpace and all the problems. I don't think that, I think they're more trusting. I think they see this as a wonderful opportunity to just, you know, anything with technology is cool, you know? and yeah, technology and, is cool. Yeah, and they, they don't see... The, the side effects when I had friend Meyer on, you know, from um, friend Meyer from trustee, and she was telling me about her son, you know, and some of the issues that she's got. And she said she thinks there ought to be a law that uh, anything that you put on the internet before age 20 or before age 25 should just be totally erased forever. <laughs> <laughs> so that, you know, when you're older, it won't come back to bite you in the butt. Yeah, but, like when you're when you're appointed nominated to the Supreme Court, right. like they're not going to find this crazy photograph of you <laughs> on Facebook. Right, right. I try to explain that to my son, who's at college right now. He says, "Dad, who cares?" <laughs> yeah, they, yeah, they don't get it. Like, oh my gosh, you know, if some people can find anything about you that you wrote years and years ago. I mean, I I can see that from just you know expert witness testimony that I found on an expert witness something that they wrote that's going to hurt them in a case that's uh, against uh, a case that we have. Yeah. So it it just really is a little bit terrifying. But um, I want to introduce you again because we've talked so much and you have so much to say, and I want to have okay. people understand who you are. I just want to say that we are speaking with Dr. Dr. Larry Poneman, who is a fabulous expert on privacy, and he is the CEO and founder of the Poneman Institute, which is a research and uh, educational institution to on, on privacy issues. So let's go back and talk now about the, the other um, survey that you did on workplace privacy. I had the opportunity to be kind of involved in this. I thought this was fascinating because all of us work in some workplace, you sure. know? So, let's talk about what what did you learn from this one? Oh gosh, there was lots of interesting findings here. We we found for the most part the reason why we did this study as kind of a backdrop. We 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 know there's a lot of research, maybe not a lot, but certainly there's a body of research on consumer related privacy issues. But there's very little research in the workplace, especially in the United States. And we wanted to find out do people even think about it or care about their privacy rights in the workplace. And we found that, well, not surprising, a lot of people don't trust their employer. Um, they don't believe their employer is going to do the right thing by them uh, from a privacy perspective. And the data that the, the employer collects is enormous. You know, it's not just your Social Security number to pay you, but it's just about everything else, including your health condition. You know, if you have a uh, a plan that's managed by a company, that's a uh, that's information about your your physical condition, right? Um, your your job performance, any problems that occurred. Um, you know, there's a there, it's a record that could attach to you for life. Um, your financial privacy, too. Financial privacy, yeah. Your credit report. You know, you maybe you're going to be denied a promotion because, well, your credit score was just too low. Or, or, or your consumer report that has a, a criminal background check that sure. shows maybe you got a DUI or something. Yeah, so these things, you know, these things happen every single day, and I think a lot of people don't really spend a lot of time worrying about this, but for the most part, most of us, the majority of people that we surveyed felt that they weren't exactly sure their employer was committed to protecting the privacy of their personal information. 46% said, well, they were, the employer was. 20% were unsure, tremendous amount of uncertainty, and 34% said absolutely no. So, you know, my, my math is correct. 54% are actually concerned. Um, Do they even understand how their employer is protecting or not protecting their personal information? Well, you know, they, they really didn't understand the employer's privacy commitment. They, they, many people didn't know. When we asked the question, does the employer have a privacy policy specifically on employee data? Right. And they said, well, we don't know. I think 20% said the employer does have some policy that deals with privacy, and 80%, for the most part, were either unsure or said no. And these same people, we asked, does the same your company have a consumer privacy policy? And the vast majority said yes. So clearly the employer is good, reasonable at at least advancing a privacy position for the consumer, but may not be reasonable 
for employee-related issues, and it's a, potentially a big problem. You know, Larry, I had a question. This didn't really come out in your in your survey, but I and I know that you're active in the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and we've had you on before with Trevor Hughes, and I'm a member of that great organization too. Do we know how many companies of the bigger companies, what percentage of companies have privacy officers to even write these privacy policies? Good question. Um, We do a benchmarking study every year. We try to determine how many people wear the title chief privacy officer, and we really focus on the, say, the thousand largest organizations. We're looking at like a Fortune 1000 or a global Fortune 1000 type population, and we're finding that it's Still, the majority of companies do not have a fully dedicated chief privacy officer, but the number is, this good news, is increasing. So it's about 50, almost 50%. Hmm. And now that's good news. Now here's more bad news. When we started this study, those people who were the title chief privacy officer seemed to be at a higher organizational position level. They were director or even vice president level, but that may not be true. I don't want to start to leak new information because we have a study under underway okay, to look okay. at this issue, but we're finding that while there are more chief privacy officers, many of these folks are at the middle level of management, and in order to have the right voice, the appropriate voice, you need to be an, uh, a member of upper management in my position, in right. my opinion. Yeah. So, and, and how many of them, do you know any, any benchmark for how many of them are, are in, like the, um, in the legal department? Yeah, the majority are still legal or law, but uh-huh. we're starting to see more and more <clears throat> privacy officers who are in the business side. Either they're somehow attached to marketing or in IT, which is actually a pretty good fact. I think in the early stage of a privacy program, having a chief privacy officer who understands the law, is a lawyer, or has a good compliance background, that could be very effective. But over time, you want to show the upside to privacy. It's not just about complying with all of these Awful, right. boring law. It's about, right. You don't want to be know, a police officer. Yeah, yeah. And so you see, you're starting to see examples. For example, the newly appointed private chief privacy officer at HP is someone <clears> who's <throat> added the customer experience side of the business, which is great, which is yeah. wonderful. Um, you know, Barbara Lawler, one of my favorite people in the Went world. Went into she, it, yeah. She, yeah, she's had into it. You know, she, again, it, these are people who are really having an impact on the business. Um, not just on complying with law and regulation. and So they have a big voice. You know, they are at a higher position level, and it's necessary in order for them to do their job. Right. So um, what, what uh, let's see, here. I want to go back to the workplace privacy oh, sure. thing. Um, h- how would a data breach involving employees um, affect the confidence and trust of their employer? Like, you know, we're finding, I'm getting people who are calling me and say, hey, I just found out that, you know, uh, all of my information, you know, from the personnel file was stolen on a, on a laptop. So yeah. how, do, how does that affect people? Well, you know, it's interesting. We focus on these big consumer or customer data breaches, um, or the case of the Veterans Administration, if you're a, a taxpayer or veteran, um, and I am, so I'm, I got my breach notice from the oh, Veterans Administration. Oh, you did, yeah. Yeah, kind of interesting. You're one of the 27 million. One huh? of the many. One yes. of the many 27 million people finally got my letter. Right. Um, that's another story. Yeah. But but what we, found, we find is that most people understand that, but in the reality, the data that an employer has about an employee, if you're an identity thief, right. you could do far more damage with that information and it happens. This data is not necessarily the most protected, right. the most secure, and it may be accessible on the Internet or offline. Yeah. It could be outsourced to benefit companies in different parts of the world. So what we think that a lot of people would be very concerned if they learned that the employer, as a result of their negligence, it, it, it caused that employee to have a problem. You know, their data is lost, and lo and behold, they became a victim of an identity theft. Right. And so what would they do? We, we asked that question, and they said, you know, sometimes you're, you're in a job that you can't necessarily leave because you have your responsibilities to yourself, your family. But I think a lot of people would feel a kind of a breach of loyalty and trust, and ultimately I think it would lead to churn. People would leave. Right. And I think they might actually file lawsuits and grievances, especially if they're a member of a union. You know, I've had so many people in different corporations write me emails and call me and say, hey, they want me to wear a badge that has my social security number on it. <laughs> or, you know, is there any law that protects me? Well, in California, there is. So do you think that we should have 
like a U.S. federal law that we pass regulations to protect the sensitive information of uh, of, of employees? Should there be a, a law about that because well, it's different yeah, in each I, state? I, my gut tells me that it's a common problem. It cuts across all organizations. You mentioned the Social Security number being a, a number like a like an employee ID or a, a way of identifying you for getting into a system, you know, your, what's your, what's your 10-digit Social Security number? Right. At the end of the day, I think there needs to be just good decision-making. Organizations need to be smarter about the whole thing, and, and organizations need to focus on the privacy commitment to the employee. And, and an interesting point, a lot of the chief privacy officers that we've discussed before, their focus is still on the consumer side. HR, the Human Resource Department, tends to still manage the employee privacy commitment. So there needs to be a more cohesive way for organizations to deal with privacy, both on the consumer and on the employee side. And I think if, if organizations step up to the plate, there probably doesn't need to be another federal regulation. But at this point in time, it's not clear whether organizations are going to spend the resources unless you know there's some catalyst for change, and maybe that change needs to be up you know, regulation or something equivalent to that. But yeah. I, I, still, I, I haven't ruled out that most organizations would try to do the right thing. It is a problem, and it's a problem that's probably going to get worse. You know, Larry, I was thinking when you were talking about, you know, the, that you got this VA letter, and, and we hear, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's been some movement in Congress toward putting together bills that would um, take the uh, Medicare number and change it. Or the your military ID number. You know, sure. the last thirty years it's been the social security number, but thirty years ago it was not. Mm-hmm. And and so I think sometimes we need to have some laws to make those change. You know, I, I hate to be where we're making laws for everything, but on the other hand, there there's such a problem that we don't self regulation just doesn't always work. For the good companies, they will take action. But for the yeah. for not for everybody. We have about Three minutes left, Lloyd says. So um, can you just kind of tell us, besides telling us your website so people can see all the great work you do, can you just tell us um, what what you do with these surveys? How do you influence? I know you do such good work. How do you influence companies and governmental agencies to, to step up to the plate? Well, you know, that's a, thank you for asking that question. That That's really what our mission is. Our mission isn't just to do research because it's fun. It is fun. The question is, how does this make a difference? And I think a lot of the work that we've done makes a, an enormous difference because it validates what people knew all along, or it actually shines the light on issues that have, has not been in the public, in the public limelight, or you know, in the eye of government. And we're we're finding that a lot of organizations are very interested. They want to find out how to improve their privacy practices, and ultimately, how do they become a more trusted organization? And it does make a difference from the consumer perspective. Consumers are more likely to share more and better data about themselves when they are dealing with an organization that they trust and they trust for privacy. So if you, if you earn a higher trust score for privacy, say you're a large bank, you're likely to get better and long-lasting customers, which is the name of the game from an economics point of view. It's not just about law and regulation. Right. And that's really what our mission is. It's really to educate organizations, government, and uh, and corporate large corporations and others that it's really important to do it and it's good good business good economics privacy is good for business it is it could be if yeah. it's done right exactly so would you give your websites and tell us what oh, uh, what sure. consumers can find on there we got Lloyd says we got two minutes left okay so I'm going to give you my website is www.poneman.org and you can contact me. You can call us. We're very lonely. We're in Michigan, so we're in a <laughs> northern Michigan in a small town. So you can reach us at, at 800-887-3118 or 231-264-5178. So contact us anytime. And we have companies, people in, that are driving home at drive time in Newport Beach, and if they want to do a survey, they can contact you and oh, perhaps yeah. coordinate with you on, on helping them to get a survey done, right? I would love to do that. We would love to do research, or if you just have any question or issue, we probably did a study over the last four years on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if not, we can always design a new study to do it. So if you have questions or concerns, issues, just give us a holler. Well, thank you so much for joining us all the way from New York, and you have a great time tonight at your speaking engagement. Oh, I hope we you, didn't ta- make you talk too much tonight, but um, we will 
We will have you back again for sure, and we love you, Larry. You are oh, terrific. Oh, you know, and thanks for being a fellow of our institute. We're honored to have you. Well, I feel so privileged to be a part of your group. It's great. So, thank you, Murray. Okay, good night. And good you... night, and, and uh, thank you, audience, for listening to me. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Happy, happy travels. Thank you. All right. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. You're listening to Privacy Piracy. I'm Mari Frank and my wonderful engineer, Lloyd Boshaw. You can also go to our website and see our previous guests, our upcoming guests, and listen to interviews. And you can even subscribe to our podcast. So go to KUCI.org forward slash Privacy Piracy. And we will see you every Wednesday at 5 to 6 p.m. right here in Irvine. Good night. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.